Father in heaven, we thank you so much for another day, another week of life. And today as we gather once again to study your word, especially uh, Daniel chapter 5, I pray that you will give us wisdom as you gave uh, to Daniel and help us to see the importance of the events that took place in the past so that we will be prepared for them in the future as well. I ask that you will be with those who are still coming, protect them as they are on their way, and be with those who are not able to be with us as well. If we send your spirit to teach us and guide us tonight, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, this week we are in Daniel chapter 5. It's all right. <laughs> Daniel chapter 5, and all right, I guess I do this pretty much every week except for last week, but what's the main point, or what's the, what do you think of when you think of Daniel chapter 5? What story, what event, what's significant? Fall of Babylon, okay. What else happened? Okay, the writing on the wall. How about relationship with previous chapters? What do you see as, what can you, just off the top of your head, this just gives me a better idea of... Sure, I, I wasn't thinking of that, but sure. God is there in the midst of them. Even though it wasn't the best place to be. That's right. That's actually one of the main main points. But now, just dovetailing off that just a little bit, what was it that Belshazzar knew? About Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well, I guess I'm getting a little too far ahead of myself. But why don't we go ahead and just start right into the chapter. In verse 1. <clears throat> All right. Who would like to read verse 1? Actually, don't tell me if you would like to, just read it. <laughs> King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and friends died with him. Okay, verse 2 also, sorry. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. All right. And then verse 3 just repeats basically what it says in verse 2. So this is, what's the scene that you're getting right here? What's going on? What's the event? That's described in these two They're verses. <laughs> They're partying. They're getting drunk. Now, this is this is this is a significant point, and um, I don't know if any of you know this. Just tell me if you do. What was what was the political climate at the time of this feast? Political or military? Or military, political, same thing. 
Okay. They're currently surrounded by the armies of Medo-Persia. That's right. That's that's the that's the point I was trying to bring out. I guess I guess um, let me just give a brief explanation. We'll go more in depth later on in the, as we go on the study. But this is during a time when they were having they they had this feast, I should say, during a time when the Medo-Persian army was besieging the city of Babylon. And this is very significant because how many cities do you know of if they're under siege would throw a party in which they invite all of the, it says, well, I guess it doesn't say all, but it says to a thousand of his lords. So a party with a thousand of the you know, military, political, economic, whatever leaders that they have. Now what kind of attitude do you feel is being demonstrated through what Belshazzar was doing? What do you think this arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency? Now, just a little side note. Babylon is an incredible city, or was, I should say. The city was built on the river Euphrates. Literally, half the city was on one side, the other was on the other side, and the river goes right through the middle. And um, because they had a constant water supply, and it was such a huge river that, you know, it's not like a little trickle uh, where it could dry up easily. It's such a big river, and the city was so massive, the walls were so big, no, nobody can go through it, nobody can go under it, nobody can go over it. And they had all the water that they need. Pretty much they were self-sufficient for indefinite, an indefinite amount of time. I mean, they could farm, grow their crops, whatever, inside the city walls. So Babylon, in a sense, they were, so to say, safe. They were being, you know, they were under siege, but yet they were not really in danger, in a sense. So Belshazzar, the king, is throwing this ball, this party, so to say, look at us. We have nothing to be afraid of. We are at the peak of our glory. You know, we don't need to be afraid of you. You guys can stay out there in your trenches in your tents and eat your stale bread, whatever. We're in here having a big party. We don't need to be afraid of you. And now, I guess I better explain before we go any further who Belshazzar, who Belshazzar is. Belshazzar, later on in the chapter, you hear him mentioned as, um, or you hear Nebuchadnezzar referred to as his father. It keeps saying that Nebuchadnezzar, your father. But the the word father, it doesn't necessarily mean your immediate father. It can also mean your ancestor or grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever. And based on the history that I've read, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And his father is Nabonidus. And during this time, he was out away uh, on other excursions, I guess you can say. So Belshazzar was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar who is the interim, so to say. He's the temporary king of Babylon. And um, he's doing this big party. Now, in this party, we already mentioned who were all there. It was all the um, lords and his wives, concubines, all of those things. But what were they doing? Drinking wine out of what? What were they using? The temple goblets or the temple vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Very important point. Now look, look in verse 4. Now what type of ceremony were they participating in? Verse 4. Just read, let's just have someone read it real quick. They 
drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. So this was a praise service, so to say, or a worship service. <laughs> they were gathering together to honor or to worship or to praise their idol gods. And they were doing that using the holy vessels of God, the true God, God of Hebrews. And it was at that time. So now this is, this is what we set up already. It was during a time of insecurity. It was in a time of, of instability. But it was at that time that these people were crying peace and safety. At that time, also at the same time, they were uniting all the political leaders under a religious or a worship, religious power, so to say. Not power, but they're united together for the purpose of worship. So we see that coming together so far. And it is at that time that verse 5 takes place. Okay, somebody read verse 5. So it was in the midst of all of this, the, the sequence and the events that have taken place, we see that, and it is at that time that a hand comes forth. Or it says, a finger of a man's hand, correct? Now, in the Bible, it's very interesting that the finger of God is, or not just finger of God, but the f a finger usually is um, connected with judgment. Now, you know, you can go back and check me out on this, but uh, the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. And then Jesus, he, you know, when the woman was caught in adultery was brought to him, he wrote with his finger in the dust, so to say, like the judgment upon the hypocrites that were trying to stone this woman. And also, another one, uh, the text is in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, if you want to write it down, is um, the Egyptian wise men, when they saw the plagues brought on by the God of heaven, they said, surely this is the finger of God. Meaning, the, in their minds, the finger of God is directly related with judgment. So in Daniel chapter 5, we see a finger coming across, writing on the, on the wall of this, of this palace building. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, if I was in the middle of a party that was, you know, people were getting drunk and doing all sorts of things, and I see this hand start writing on the wall, you know, I would naturally in t in be inclined to think that this is not good news, right? Yeah, that's true. Oh, too much wine. Uh, too much wine, sure. <laughs> yeah, you see, everybody, everybody, everybody saw it. And, um, okay, so that's, that's the setup. All right, that's what happened. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him. This is verse 6. So that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. Now, this is very, very interesting. Because why did the Bible do, go to the lengths of mentioning Belshazzar was so scared that his knees started knocking against each other? You know, I, that's really interesting. Um, because uh, if you look in Isaiah chapter 45... Um, maybe we'll go there in a little bit. But that was actually prophesied. Isaiah the prophet actually prophesied that you will lose the joints of, of or lose the loins of the king of Babylon. Something like that. Maybe we'll go there in a little bit. But I just, I just saw that today, so I just thought I might 
share that with you. But anyway, verse 7. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8 also. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Now, I just want to take a pause here. This is always, this is so funny to me in terms of, if you look at the progression of the wise men of Babylon. In chapter 1, you see the wise men, um, they were totally outwitted by the three Hebrew, or the four Hebrew boys. I mean, these, these, even the teachers of these four boys were not as smart as they were. Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the four of them, were declared ten times wiser than all the wise men of the realm. So, first of all, they were, they were not even as smart as their students, first. Chapter 2, they come to, before the king, and the king has this dream, and he can't remember it. And they who the, you know, claim to have powers of the supernatural, they were not able to do what they claim that they should be able to do. They weren't able to tell the dream. So like, well, you know, minus 10 points. And then verse chapter 3, they have this grand scheme to trap God's people. But then, you know, it didn't work. So I guess they couldn't really, you know, scheme evil, evilly, evil. They can't even do these evil schemes anyway. And then chapter 4, the king had a dream. Another dream. It sounds remarkably like chapter 2. But the king this time remembered the dream. Even though he could tell them the dream, they still couldn't interpret it. I mean, that's pretty bad. But now in chapter 5, the writing was written out for them to see, and they still could not read it, much less interpret it. I mean, it says they can't interpret it, but it also says they can't even read the words. Now, what kind of wise men are these? Now this is, you know, believe it or not, there is a significance to that. And that is this, that every time, if you think of the, the um, showdown, or sort of like, a, I don't want to use competition, but a uh, contest or contention between God's faithful and the wicked, God always gives the wicked plenty of opportunities to prove themselves. He gives them ample time, ample uh, opportunity to you know, show that they have this stuff you know, that they claim that they can do. But yet, in the midst of all that, the wise of the world, they always fail. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, and God calls the fools to confound the wise. And now this is even significant in the book of Daniel. Um, let's just look there. In Daniel chapter 12. We'll come back. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Um, for those of you who don't completely understand what I'm about to say, that's okay. Um, one of these days, I'm sure you will. But Daniel chapter 12, verse 9 and verse 10. Can someone please read that for us? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand Okay, now in these two verses, at the very, very end of Daniel, we see that something is sealed up in the book of Daniel. Without going to the full explanation, 
the, the thing that was sealed up is the prophecy of the 2300 days, found in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And um, the words are closed and sealed until the time of the end. Now, when it is unsealed at the time of the end, who does the Bible say will be able to understand it? The wise. Now, within the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel, we must study it contextually within each chapter in the book before we go elsewhere, just to be safe. Within the book of Daniel, who is the wise man? Sure. But within the book of Daniel, completely, the whole book, <laughs> Daniel and his three friends. So now, this is putting two and two together. In order for, or let me put it this way, the people who are able to understand, or the wise, who will be able to understand the prophecy of the 2300 days when it is unsealed at the time of the end, they are the people that go through the same experience, or have the same discipline, the same faith, the same type of dedication to God as Daniel and his three friends. So in studying the first six chapters of Daniel, and looking at the experience that Daniel and his friends went through, and the, and the type of life that they lived, the way that they went about their relationship with one another and with um, the people of the world, as well as with God, as people learn to do that, then they will also be called wise. And in the end, the wise are the ones that truly understand this prophecy that was sealed, but will be opened. And might I also add that understanding the prophecy is not simply an intellectual acknowledgement that it's true, or even, a, or even an ability to prove the ins and outs of these prophecy, the prophecy of the 2300 days. I mean, fine, I mean, plenty of people can do the, the mathematical calculations, day to year, all of that. But the key is, the wise who will understand means the wise who will fulfill. Or the wise are the ones who will go through this prophecy, or be participants in the prophecy. And the 2300 days is a prophecy about the finishing of the atonement of God and his people, the cleansing of the sanctuary. So the wise people, it's not just, a, I mean, being wise does not simply constitute being able to explain it, but also to be able to stand during the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, I know I've, I've taken a couple skip and hops in the future, but in Daniel chapter 4, 5, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 so far, we see the experience of Daniel is the experience that those must those who will stand in the judgment also must have. And in chapter 6 also, we'll touch more on that next week. But now, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit um, in Daniel chapter 5. The story continues. Nobody can read the words. Nobody can interpret it. But the queen, it says, I believe it's it to be the queen mother, probably the mother of, or the, the wife, I should say, the wife of King Nabonidus, who isn't there at the time. She says... There's a man, there's a man in the kingdom who is very wise. And your father, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had him as the, the head of the master of the magicians and astrologers, Chaldeans and soothsayers, and, or the wise men, and so forth. 
And so call, her, call him forth. Well, let me just read it in verse 12. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So simply put, Daniel was not at the party. Daniel was not at the party. Now this is, this is going to be even more significant perhaps in the next chapter. But many times we think of Daniel as, wow, I want to be like Daniel. He's, he's so wise and he's so capable. He's so smart and uh, God was able to bless him so significantly and put him in such a high position. But is that really something to be covetous of? I mean, obviously we shouldn't covet anything. But is that something to be even remotely envious of? I mean, sure, if God sees that we have that capability, He'll place us there. But do we really want to be in that position as Daniel? I mean, I tend to not think so. Um, In the next chapter, we'll see that much clearer. But Daniel here was not at the party. He was not at this grand ball or this grand gathering where everybody's anybody was there. He was not there. So now, when Daniel came in, notice what the king says to him in verse 13. Okay, this is this reflects the um, the attitude that Belshazzar had at the time. You see, Daniel by this time is he's been in Babylon for many years. Uh, some historians say he's in his mid mid eighties, and this old man comes walking in. You know, he was the chief of all the wise men. He was probably the the most beloved counselor of the king Nebuchadnezzar. And this is how Belshazzar greets him, okay? Belshazzar says, Daniel, are you that, are you that, that Daniel that, you know, we captured your city and we took you as a slave? Are you, are you the one that, you know, sort of, so to say, are you, the, are you that slave that we just, out of the kindness of our heart, gave you everything that you have? That was the kind of attitude that's being communicated. Verse 14, And I have heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding excellent wisdom is found in thee. Verse 15, And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing, and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. Verse 16, And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet, and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and thou shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, know on the third ruler. We already mentioned Belshazzar is the son of the king who's still alive. So he is the second ruler. So he can't grant anyone higher than the third ruler. Okay. But notice, in verse 16, he says, Now if thou canst read the writing. If. If you remember in chapter 4, let me see if I can find it. Verse 4. Uh, verse 18. Actually, verse 9, and then verse 18. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his, con- 
Was sorry, sorry, sorry. Chapter 4, I'm sorry. Oh, chapter, four. chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 18. Uh, o Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretations thereof. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. <coughs> now that, O Belshazzar, Declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy God is in thee. Now, you see the noticeable difference between the attitude of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had implicit trust, complete faith in the prophet of God. But yet, Belshazzar, although he's actually seen the fulfillment of the prophecy that Daniel has given in chapter 4, which is mentioned a little bit later in chapter 5, he did not believe. He did not yet exercise that faith. Obvious, the obvious personal application for us is that we cannot live on the faith of our, our parents or our grandparents. And we cannot just take other people's word for it. We can't think that just because they think it's fine that we can just go along with it. Or we can't just think, well, that's their religion. It has nothing to do with me. I don't have to think like them. Uh, we need to be careful that we test all that we believe, whether, whether it, it be for the truth, whether it be for, the, um, for error. But now, let's keep going to see what Daniel says. Verse 17, this is what Daniel says. Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known unto him the interpretation. Now I want to pause here for a moment. This says, Daniel, right here, he says, what is he about to do? He says, I will make known to him the interpretation. So you would expect that the next words that come out of Daniel's mouth would be the interpretation of the, of the, of the words, right? But look at what he says, okay? Verse 18, 19, 20. 21 and 22. Can someone read that for us? So 18 through 22. O thou king, most high God, be in Nebuchadnezzar thy father in kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with the grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed it over whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. And this to me is the whole point. I mean, this is the whole main focus of this whole chapter. And that is that the whole message that Daniel had for Belshazzar, it was not simply, well, this is what the words say, this is what they mean. Again, Daniel was not trying just to communicate the information, but he was also trying to communicate the purpose of God through his interpretation of these things. But now this is, this is very interesting. And that is that in the past, Daniel has always said, 
O thou king, the Most High God had gave you, Nebuchadnezzar, a kingdom, dominion, da-da-da-da-da. But when he talks to Belshazzar, he still says, the, the Most High God of heaven gave to Nebuchadnezzar all of these things. It, it was never given to Belshazzar. Now why is that? I don't have a conclusive answer, but what it tends, what, what, the, the impression that it tends to come off on me is that God, he was trying simply to say, I have already gone through all the trouble of humbling your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar so that you don't have to go through the same thing. But yet, although you've seen it, you've heard it, you were there, the first hand probably, you still have not changed. You remember what we said last time about signs and wonders. Belshazzar had already seen all that God could show him. There's really nothing more that God could do in the sense of reveal himself more fully or reveal himself more personally. Because he's already done the miracle of you know, having Nebuchadnezzar you know, change the beast and back. And then Nebuchadnezzar wrote this whole you know, testimony that we see in chapter 4, you know, detailing his experience and praising the God of heaven. And not only that, he's also seen, or he's, I'm sure he's heard of all the different experiences that Nebuchadnezzar had with the people of God in chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1. So Belshazzar, he had no excuse because he already knew. He knew all of this, but he still did not humble his heart. So even though he knew all of this, what did he do again? He took the vessels out of the temple of Israel, the temple of Jerusalem. This was not just, you know, some sort of haphazard, drunken stupor. He did it on purpose. This was open rebellion. And he cared not what God thought because he simply said, you know, let's take out the vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem, knowing that that was the vessels of the God that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had converted to worship. So this is the circumstances. At the, um, that led up to the three words, or the, I guess it's four words, but three-part message that was written on the wall. You see, Babylon was coming to a time where they were openly rebelling against God, knowingly, but yet they were indifferent. Sure. Uh, I just kind of noticed that that this is a pretty bold thing for Daniel to say Mm -hmm. in front of the king because it illustrates to me how resigned that Daniel was to the Lord's will. That's right. Sure. That's exactly right. That's and right. That's, we need to be thinking about that too in our lives. That a Christian is one who uh, calls sin by its right name. Regardless of consequences. He's not concerned about the consequences. That's right. And we actually see that throughout the whole book of Daniel, don't we? Chapter 1, 2, 3, well, sort of 4 and 5. And we see that again in chapter 6. But now let's keep going here. Verse 23 basically details what we've already talked about. This, you know, his worship of, of the heathen gods. Now, verse 24. Uh, let's, let's just skip 24. 25 through 28. 
This is the inscription. That was written five years ago. Okay. Mini mini to uh Parson. This is what the words mean. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it really. Mini mini. That's fine. God has numbered the uh, the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Keep going. You you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Okay, so this is the judgment message. Three parts detailing, I guess, three aspects of this judgment. First, it says mini, or mene. I don't really know how to pronounce it either. God has numbered that kingdom and finished it. Now, this is a significant... Uh, this, well, let me put it this way. What is the key word? Numbered. The, the, basically, the whole concept or the thought of mine is encompassed in the word numbered. God has numbered. And the term numbered, um, I guess the version that Joey had, says, number the days of thy kingdom. Reigned. Oh, R-E-I. Okay. So God has numbered thy kingdom. Or we can say God has gone through a process. A process of numbering. Or a process of determination. There has to be... The, the concept of numbering is a concept of a process of determination. Something went through a process to come to a conclusion. Or in the personal application, God numbered the number of, he numbered the chances that he's given. He's numbered the times they've heeded, he's numbered the time they've rejected. And he has finished it. Or can we say he has come through a process of investigation, but now the investigation is over. It's finished. Now the next part, tekel. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. I, I believe this to be somewhat of a repeat of the previous concept, but enlarging it a little bit more. Thou art weighed in the balances. Again, it's a process of determination. You know, it's like an investigation type of work. But you are found wanting. So this, the enlargement is that we've investigated, but you are guilty. You, are come out, you came out wanting. You're not you didn't come out on the favorable side. So guilty. Perez. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So linking it with a previous concept. You, were, you came out guilty and the sentence will be your kingdom will fall. Your kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. So to put it in my own words, you can perhaps put it in another word. Meaning the investigation is completed. Tekel, the verdict is that you're guilty. Perez, and the sentence is that your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Does that make sense? So far? It's the same as Perez. Mm -hmm. Just a different tense, I believe, or a different form of the word. So that, that's the three-part judgment message. And what happens after that? Verse 29, Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck 
and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius, or Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now, 30 and 31, pretty self-explanatory. Now, verse 29, I'm still studying this myself, so don't hold me to what I say. But first of all, Daniel specifically said, I don't want your gold, your scarlet, I don't want any of that, but I'm going to tell you the interpretation anyway. But at the end, King Belshazzar gave it to him nonetheless. You know, I can't read his mind, and I've, I've studied in um, Spirit of Prophecy. It doesn't give the official reasoning why he did that, so I'm not going to speculate. But what I do want to say is that through his actions, somehow, it gives the impression that he acknowledged that this was true. He accepted the fact that this was true. He did not say, away with Daniel, off with his head. Neither did he turn around and you know, pretend nothing happened because he did follow up his promise. So I'm not officially sure, but I, I am satisfied in saying that he acknowledged that what Daniel said was true. And this, in the final scope of all things, is that for each of us, God will not, even, if, even for Satan himself, God will not put us in a lake of fire until we recognize and we acknowledge that God was right and we were wrong. That is, granted, you know, we're not inside the city. And that's, that's just the fairness of God. Because, you see, this writing on the wall, God did not have to write on the wall. God did not have to give them this warning. Dan, uh, or Daniel didn't even need to come. I mean, Daniel probably, perhaps, maybe, you know, knew that Babylon was going to fall that night anyway. But God, out of His mercy, wanted Belshazzar himself to acknowledge the fact that, yes, this is just and this is true. So now, let's, let's put this all together. You know, we've gone through this story sort of um, skipping and hopping. But drawing the end time perspective and application, we've already done a little bit of that. We see that what's happening at the beginning of this chapter is that there was a union of all the political powers. Thousands of his lords, of the king, was gathered together, and they were united for the purpose of worship and the worship of false gods. And the way that they were worshiping their false gods was not just gathering together just any old way. They actually gathered together using the holy vessels of God and filling it with the wine of Babylon. So there is a blaspheming or a profaning of God's holy vessels in the process of doing you know, what is unholy. And it is at that time that there is an encrypted message that's written where everyone can see or in the midst of heaven. And there's a three-part judgment message that, not, that nobody can really understand until God reveals His true prophet. And only the true prophet of God can fully unravel, read, and interpret this three-part judgment message. And this message... I guess I use the word encrypted. I can also use the word, it was a sealed message. These words were written so everybody can see them and read them, but they could not understand. 
It was closed up and sealed. In Daniel chapter 12, we see only the wise shall understand. And the wise, in chapter 5, obviously, is Daniel. And the prophecy that was, the only prophecy that was sealed in the book of Daniel is the 2300 days. And it is only the true prophet that can interpret that writing. And that writing has three parts. The first part, it's an investigation. The second part, talking about the verdict. And the third part, is talking about the sentence. And it's dealing with the fall of Babylon. So, putting all these things together, putting all of these things together, we see during a time of all the political leaders coming together under the banner of false worship, but filling the holy vessels of God with the wine of Babylon. And the wine of Babylon, it represents false doctrine. So perhaps I can draw this conclusion using the holy Sabbath concept, the doctrine of the holy Sabbath, but filling it with the wine of Babylon, changing the day, although keeping the significance in the name of worship. And under that worship all the political powers gathered together. At that time, a message will be proclaimed in the midst of heaven to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Three-part message that was sealed until the time of the end. And it is at the time of the end that only the wise, or I should say the true prophet, unravels and interprets that message. And that message we understand to be the 2300 days. The first part of the message, meaning, investigation, Fear God, worship Him, uh, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. The hour of His judgment is come. The second part of the message, uh, Tekel, that kingdom is without them, weighed in, in the balances and found wanting. You are guilty, and that is why Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why? Because you made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The same reason why Babylon fell, according to Daniel, you knew all of this, but yet you still profane God's holy vessel, and you still worship your gods of gold and brass and all this. And finally, the third, the sentence, that kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In Daniel chapter, or Revelation 14, the third angel's message, it says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So we see here, the events in Daniel chapter 5 parallels with the events in the book of Revelation, detailing the end of modern Babylon. The fall of ancient Babylon reveals the fall of modern Babylon. And I, I know some of you have heard me preach on this before. And um, that's fine. But this is something else. In, in chapter 5 and verse 5, notice that there's something else that's included in this in the whole scope of things. There's something that casts light. Something that gives clarity to this message. And what is that? In Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So this hand wrote in a place where the candlestick was able to illuminate it, where the candlestick was able to bring it to you know, clarity so everyone can read it. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, you can read that or write it down. A candlestick represents a church. God's church. And so in the final in the final ending moments of Babylon, modern Babylon, it will be the church of God 
and it says candlestick. And we know which candlestick is going to be in existence right before Jesus comes. This is the candlestick of Laodicea, believe it or not. It's going to be casting light on this message so that the world can see it. And in the end, um, Babylon will fall. But yet, at the same time, we are to call people to come out of her before that time comes. And um, there's a whole lot more that we can discuss. I guess we should also add this note. That is that um, there were a lot of wise men, a lot of wise men that tried to read the writing, but only one could. So whoever is the one that can discover or, or rightly interpret the sealed message, that must be the true prophet. Does that make sense? I mean, simple process of elimination. And there's only one prophet only one that has ever rightly interpreted the prophecy of the 2300 days. And that prophet is Ellen White. So I make no, I make no apologies about you know, quoting her or you know, talking about her. I believe her to be the true prophet for God's final generation and God's remnant people. And this is just one of the many ways that we can discover that. She's the only one that gave consistent biblical proof of the sealed message of 2300 days I know we've you know I've already talked about 2300 days and the judgment and all of this before we ever reached Daniel chapter 8 but um but that's fine everything points there anyway so so why don't we close with prayer I'm ending right on time and if you have any questions we can discuss that afterwards let's name Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this story that is so packed with meaning in Daniel chapter 5. Lord, we realize that you truly do not waste words, and at the same time, you want us to teach us so much, but yet our finite minds just cannot grasp all of it. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to work in us and on us, that we will be faithful like Daniel was, as our brother Curtis mentioned, that we will be willing to call sin by its right name, regardless of consequences. And also that we will be wise, as Daniel was wise, so that we will not only be able to intellectually explain the 2300 days, but that we will truly have the experience of having our soul temple cleansed, and in turn having the heavenly sanctuary cleansed once and for all. I pray, Lord, that help us, that you will help us to continue to understand the deep things of your word as we continue to try to seek these things out, to understand them better for ourselves, and to teach them to others as well. Please bless us as we depart our separate ways tonight. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.